Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited for this episode. It's been a long time in the making. Today's guest is Dr. Renee Lertzman, an environmental psychologist who works with groups and individuals on dealing with the psychological implications of climate change. Renee has been recommended several times, and we were finally able to sit down and have this conversation. Renee is a leading voice in this space, and you're going to learn a ton about climate grief and trauma and ways for you and your organization to respond. Okay, some exciting news. On occasion, I have an intern who volunteers with me. This semester, Mahiro Shimano has joined me. Mahiro is an undergraduate student at Northeastern University in Massachusetts. And Mahiro's first project was starting a newsletter for America DAPS, and we had our inaugural issue come out recently. You can subscribe to the newsletter by visiting the website at americadaps.org, and there's a button on that page to subscribe. Definitely check it out. We share updates on episodes, information on adaptation-related webinars, articles, and conferences, and dear to my heart, we highlight other climate podcasters. Most newsletters do a terrible job about including podcasts as resources. It doesn't even have to be about climate change. Podcasts provide some really substantive information, and all those newsletters you subscribe to should highlight them. Mahiro did a fantastic job with the first edition, and we're already working on the next. So don't forget to subscribe. Okay, upcoming episodes. I'm going to be talking with Laura Shifter of Harvard University and the Aspen Institute. She's leading a process called K-12 Climate Action, where they are working with schools to provide resources for students to integrate climate change into their curricula, an issue near and dear to my heart. Also, the third episode in a three-part series with the Trustees of Reservations in Massachusetts, where we will close out the series discussing coastal adaptation on Nord Point Beach on Martha's Vineyard. And coming back to the show is Dr. Amy Brady, and we're going to get an update on Cli-Fi, climate fiction. I haven't had Amy on for a while, and we're going to touch base, hear about some of the new books that are out, and just take a deep dive on the topic. They're always very popular. I'm looking forward to chatting with Amy again. Okay, adapters. Let's join in with Dr. Renee Lertzman. Hey, Adapters. Today I have an exciting episode. I'm talking with Dr. Renee Lertzman. Renee is an environmental psychologist and founder of Project Inside Out, a forthcoming resource hub and emerging community of practice that unites activists with clinical psychologists. Hi, Renee. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, very happy to be here. Thank you. All right. I feel like this conversation was a long time in the making. And, you know, I I sort of want to just visit. We had to delay it that first time because you were dealing with your own sort of, well, not sort of a climate impact because you kind of got to give that background. Right. Well, we had our conversation scheduled at a time that coincided with really probably the most extreme moments during the California wildfires. And I live north of San Francisco in Marin County, quite close to the really significant fires that were happening in in West Marin. We were obviously impacted in the Bay Area from fires from virtually every direction. And it was really a profound moment. You know, it was a viscerally, physically, physiologically, emotionally, cognitively, spiritually intense moment that we were all going through. And it was really, I would say, the first time I personally have experienced such a direct impact on my just ability to function during that stretch of time. 
Well, I obviously wasn't going through what you were going through, but it's the first time a, a podcast episode was delayed because it was related to climate change. So here we are. You know, people are living it. Appreciate you were able to reschedule pretty quickly. And so I want to come back to that, though. I want to come back to the what you just described and what you experienced. And I, I want to we're going to bring it back to some of the other work that you're doing. But I want to give some baseline information here first. And so what is an environmental psychologist? Well, an environmental psychologist can mean many different things, depending on who's asking and who's working in the space. So um, I'll just respond to what it means for me and the context that I'm applying it. Really, it's since the late 80s that I've been focused quite specifically on wanting to understand the psychological impact of becoming aware, waking up to our ecological crises and climate change. So for me, there has always been a very direct relationship between the psychological impact and implications of, of the issues, particularly the, I think, what I've come to understand are incredibly complex, complicated feelings, responses, you know, ways of, of coping and dealing with uh, the whole array of ecological crisis, biodiversity crisis, climate change. I'm particularly interested in really looking at what does the psychological community, the psychological field have to offer and inform those of us on the planet who are actually working to, you know, mitigate, to reverse, to adapt, to meet these crises, these challenges in the most productive, constructive, life-affirming way for living systems on the planet. And so for me, an environmental psychologist is someone who recognizes the absolute integral kind of interconnected uh, relationship of these realms. You know, an environmental psychologist sees our psychological work and and research is inseparable from the environments, the context that we're living in, the biotic world we're embedded in and living in and with, and also sees that any work in the environmental space with regards to human impact on our living systems is, in fact, also deeply psychological. So we can't actually be separating these things, and it's my hope that you know, within the coming years, uh, hopefully sooner than later, these distinctions will be dissolved, that psychologists will be working alongside with climate and environmental practitioners, scientists, advocates, policy, economists, and so forth. And over time, we'll see a growing capacity, skill sets that infuse these fields. So it's not only let's partner, you know, you're the psychologist, I'm the climate scientist. Ideally, you know, the psychological field actually gets up to speed and really wakes up and tunes in to what's happening. And climate scientists, climate professionals, practitioners, advocates, campaigners actually have some baseline literacy of the psychological landscape that we are now in whether we like it or not. Okay, so you're going back to the 80s when you're looking at some of these environmental issues. Do you remember a moment, and I'm, I, I'm guessing it probably came naturally, but when climate change really started to pop up on your radar? Well, I was an undergraduate at UC Santa Cruz, and within the first two years of my time there, I was taking a combination of environmental studies classes along with psychology and 
you know, other kind of liberal arts classes and some environmental sciences. So for me, it was those early years, you know, that was like 87, 88, when we were starting to see signals. Um, this was a very dynamic time in the field of environmental studies. Environmental studies itself was going through a period that started really the late 80s and extended into the mid 90s, where there was more interdisciplinarity, there was more sort of um conversations and, you know, again, these signals that this is on the horizon, this is coming, climate crisis is is, is here and it's happening. So we started to see that. The, the first paper that I know of published on the psychology of climate change was in the 80s. I'm trying to remember it was, I think it was the, the mid-80s by a researcher Baruch Fischoff. And he and his team were commissioned by the Department of Energy to conduct some, you know, early stage analysis of the psychology of global warming, as it was called back then. So this was, you know, early to mid 80s is when we were just starting to see some attention. And it was definitely influencing me at the time as a 18, 19, 20 year old, uh, where, you know, once the cat was out of the bag, that was it. You know, there was absolutely no turning back. You can't unlearn what you you know, you can't unlearn these things, right? You know, someone's going to go do a book on UC Santa Cruz and the amount of climate <laughs> academics and people <laughs> that came out of that school. I cross paths <laughs> with you people all the time. That's great. Mm. So could you give my listeners maybe some grounding as we further kind of dig into this is just some terminology just to make sure everyone's sort of on the same page. And two definitions that you could maybe briefly give the definition for is climate grief and eco-anxiety. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to I'm going to offer my my interpretation, because, again, this is a very emerging field. And so there's we're, we're living in a moment where there's multiple ways of understanding what these terms mean, which is actually a really exciting moment. And paradoxically, even though we're talking about grief and anxiety, the climate grief is referencing the very specific, unique kind of grief response, grief experience, both directly and indirectly when it comes to climate impact, climate change. So directly meaning visceral, direct, physical impact, uh, you know, whether it's through extreme weather events, communities forced to relocate, the inability to continue practices uh, agriculturally due to drought, uh, fishing, you know, all those very kind of what we could think of as very direct impacts. Then there's the indirect or the secondary. So primary, secondary, direct, indirect, which is how it comes through to us through the media, through what we're hearing, what we're learning, through scientific reports, through classes, through webinars, through films, through TV, uh, news, headlines, all of that, you know, conversations we're having, things we see out in the world, you know, signage, billboards, messaging that come to us that relay the magnitude and the severity of what's happening. And so the climate grief is a very natural, normal response to the rate of change that is taking place on the planet due to human-generated climatic change. It's a very natural response, and I think it's absolutely critical that we 
acknowledge that, that we're not afraid of it, that we normalize that because paradoxically that will enable us to move through it much more capably and with much more resilience. So eco-anxiety is also a term that's been circulating for some time. And uh, it's been around a while. You know, I started talking about eco-anxiety, environmental anxiety, you know, like a decade ago. It's it's not new, but it's really hit the mainstream in a, in a pretty significant way over the past year and several months. And eco-anxiety relates to a specific kind of anxiety that we may be experiencing in relation to ecological environmental crisis and threats. So eco-anxiety, my sense is it's more of a it's it's anxiety. It's it's that that kind of in the background, that sense of overwhelm, that sense of concern, worry, feeling dread, you know, just feeling the feelings, the messy and complicated feelings that can show up as an anxious response. You sort of answered this, and my, my follow-up question to the, that is that I've watched, I guess, like you said, it's a relatively new field, and it's emerging in, I've, you know, I guess really only noticed in the last four to five years, maybe a little bit longer, and I never was able to quite distinguish, and so there's these people that are, like, they're workers in the climate space, and I deal with them a lot, and this is coming up with them talking about personal resilience, and there's eco-anxiety, but as you just described, let's say you're in the path of a hurricane, and there's, you know, that's tied to climate change, and, you know, you have to flee your home or wildfire, but then you go back, and they're sort of going back to somewhat to normal. I thought maybe that they were two different fields there, because it just seems like there's, it'd be two very different approaches, maybe to helping people get get that. And so you're basically saying that those things are one and the same or no. Are you talking about grief and anxiety or right, just, direct or indirect? Right. And, and I guess like the, the terminology and how, you know, is people kind of suffering th- through these areas. It's just the personal resilience in the face of, let's say, a climate impact versus like, you know, you're working in the field. Like I work with a lot of people, work mm. with climate organizations, and it's really depressing for them to think about climate change as opposed to like, you know, your experience with poor air quality, you were dealing with a direct impact as a environmental psychologist. It seems like those are two very different kind of tracks in, in, and how people are experiencing climate change. Those are different tracks. And that, and that's why I was dif- differentiating between direct and indirect impacts or primary and secondary. I think it's really important that we don't lump them all together, that there's the primary or direct impact, which is my body is directly impacted. My ability to be, you know, to be viable in the world, my, my existence, my existential conditions are directly being impacted. And so there's that, which is in the realm of trauma. That is a kind of trauma. And then we've got people working in the space, people starting to get engaged in the space, waking up, getting engaged, who are having to process the magnitude and the scale of what we're dealing with. That in itself, I would argue, is also a kind of trauma. It is a traumatic experience to be going through that we are not recognizing and naming nearly enough that we need to be, because when we do, we actually, we really provide more scaffolding and support for ourselves because we can then talk about it. And in our ability to talk about it, this is actually where a lot of the healing and resilience comes. It's, to, it's really kind of simple, you know, to be able to say, I'm just dealing with just this profound climate grief right now. You know, I just, I've, I've just, this event just happened, this bill didn't pass or this, 
you know, things just went backwards or there's this kind of, you know, whatever that might be to be able to say, I'm just feeling so much grief right now. And when we have a language for that, we can actually support each other better. We can, we can figure out how to navigate it. It's like, okay, this is what I'm going to do to take care of myself. And this is what I can do to help take care of you and support you. And it's a whole way of really fostering resilience. That's a really, really key part of, of resilience is the ability to talk uh, openly about what we're experiencing. But to your point in your question, which I feel was really right on, which is let's just start with talking about these terminologies and what they mean, because in order to, you know, in order to have these conversations, we need to at least be on the same page. So, you know, the same goes with anxiety and eco-anxiety. I associate eco-anxiety. Uh, I mean, we all I think we are all frankly experiencing some level of eco-anxiety. I don't care how checked out you are. You know, you might not even be conscious of it. But it's hard to be alive in the world right now, aware of what we already know, whether it's plastics or species, you know, lost. You know, we can tune it out and deny it. But on an existential level, there's some anxiety and it's, you know, varies per person and conditions and circumstances. But being able to just say I'm having I'm experiencing so much eco anxiety about what's going on in the world, then it allows us to one, understand our own experience like, okay, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm, I'm okay. This is normal. This is natural. I'm going through this. It will shift. You know, this will change. I'm not going to be here forever, but it also allows each other, you know, ourselves and one another to, to learn how to respond and show up for that. Okay. You know, I hear you. I get it. You know, I'm feeling anxious too. What can we do together to work through this? You know, what can we do to navigate this, whether it's taking time out or whether it's actually focusing on a project that gives us a lot of you know, energy and joy or whether it's doubling down on our efforts, like whatever that is, being able to name and acknowledge these feelings, these experiences is a really vital part of that. Okay. And that's great. I'm glad you were able to sort of explain that because a lot of my questions are more focused on people that, let's say, are in the climate workspace. And, you know, a lot of the work that you're doing, I think, is more focused on in that sort of demographic as opposed to, let's say, a family, their homes burned down because of a wildfire and they're not working in climate. My question might not make sense to that kind of demographic, even though they're both experiencing eco-anxiety and, uh, you know, these, these other issues. So that, that's how I kind exactly. of, okay, I just want yeah. I want my listeners to know, like, they're thinking my question, well, that's not very relevant relevant to someone who just was in the path of a hurricane. This was more about sort of the work that you're doing with individuals and organizations. And so on, on that note, why do you think people don't often want to talk about climate change and their feelings about it? I mean, some people are really good about it, but in general, why do you think it's so difficult for especially those in, in that professional space? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. So I have been working with environmental and climate orgs for decades now, for at least two decades and what I've observed is a few things. One is that people who are drawn to these fields and these professions, it's sort of like clinicians in the health sector. In fact, I think it's a lot like uh, health professionals. We're drawn to make a difference, to heal, to, to help, right, to, to make change happen. And there's an incredible drive to do so, right? There's, there's a level of fortitude and drive and commitment that is there. Often I find that people in these spaces, in these organizations are also highly tactical, very applied, real doer, like let's get it done kind of folks. 
And I would say that have channeled a lot of the fear or anxiety or feeling helpless or feeling overwhelmed into being active, right? Into being uh, applied. So that's, that's what, what we're seeing and what's worked is, you know, it's kind of, I, this is like me. I mean, I've literally done this my entire adult life, right? So I have channeled my anxiety, my grief, my despair, all of that. I've channeled that into my work. And so what I find in organizations, in climate organizations in particular, is that there's a, a perception that if we pause, if we acknowledge the feelings, the, the sadness and the, the hard feelings, right? Not only the, the inspiration and the, you know, motivation and why are we doing this and what keeps us going, but the harder feelings, uh, there's a, there's a real fear that that's going to take us down. It's going to pull us into a black hole and we will never come out of that hole. You know, that's what I find. And so there's a, there's a almost allergy to quote going there. You know, there's a real allergy. There has been up until very recently, and this is actually starting to change. And I actually am doing more and more work with climate organizations who are, frankly, are going through so much pain. And this started in 2016 that they're being kind of forced to have to change some of their organizational culture and practices and norms because they're start, you know, starting to see that we can't be actually effective unless we do. So, so I think it's a combination of that. I think it's, it's some, you know, I, I think there's some assumptions and some fear about the hard stuff. I also think there's a personality type. I think that a lot of people working in the space are, um, like I mentioned, just very effective, very effective individuals. Well, on the note, and let's just jump in, like you're working with individuals and organizations. So how does that manifest itself? You're, you're saying that they're highly functional and they're very, these are very accomplished people doing a lot of important things. But are you finding that, and in, in I guess just with your own personal experiences, is that, okay, that's great, but they're likely to burn out in two years or they can limp along for another 20 years. How are you able to sort of assess this is a problem? They should ha- be able to address it. But if if they don't, how is that really manifesting itself in the workplace? Mm-hmm. Well, it's manifesting precisely through burnout and low-grade burnout. So we think of burnout as maybe something kind of dramatic, like an event, you know, like I can't work anymore, I have to stop, or people literally shifting their career or, you know, changing jobs, taking a year off or whatever that might be. But what we're actually seeing is a lot more low-grade burnout. And the low-grade burnout shows up in all kinds of ways. And I've developed, I guess, sort of a radar for this. And it, it, it has to do with how people are talking about their relationship with the work and starting to acknowledge how hard and taxing and stressful it is. So there's starting to be more just acknowledgement and, and conversation about this is hard. You know, we're feeling really stretched, feeling really overwhelmed. I, I often hear from managers, people in leadership positions who are picking up the signals from their teams and they're aware that something, you know, needs to change. Something needs to happen because they're seeing the signs of people 
not really being as effective as they normally would be of sharing. Maybe it's in one-on-ones, more personally, the personal impact. We're seeing it a variety of ways. But basically, to your point, the bottom line is that when organizations don't have that kind of emotional culture where we can actually speak openly and process the various complicated feelings, it leads to an organizational culture that's ultimately not healthy and ends up driving people, you know, either away or to the ground. I wonder, and I've worked with nonprofits for a big chunk of my career. And so you, you let's say you have a staff of 20 or 50 or whatever, just a re- relatively small organization. And let's say the executive director does set up a situation. They bring someone like you in where you can hopefully start to identify people that are really experiencing these things. But then you have people, they're just fine. And, and I'm saying this very generically, right? They're just like, oh, you know, they're not experiencing that. And then all of a sudden there's some friction between employees. What's the expectation for maybe someone who's not going through this climate grief and maybe their coworker is like, how does that mm. all work? Cause you, you would hope the, I guess the first step is getting leadership to even acknowledge there might be a problem then the steps going through it, not everyone's on the same page. How do you kind of deal with those situations? Right. That's a really good question. And it's a very common dynamic. And so there's a variety of ways of going about that. One of the first things I do when I'm working with an organization in partnership uh, with leadership is I do a lot of interviewing. So I do a lot of listening to capture where everyone is, you know, as much as possible I might do some, you know, administer some surveys, but I'm really interested in conversational interviews. And then I capture what I'm hearing. And then we all, you know, we we have a convening where we get people in the room who, to your point, are having potentially very different kinds of experiences. And I share out in a, you know, high level, highly anonymized way. This is what's happening in your organization. So providing that kind of feedback and, you know, a sort of a 360 is really powerful because it helps us see that, you know, there is a spectrum, that there's some diversity here, but we start to see where there's also patterns and tendencies and themes. So that's that's really number one is that level set of where are we all at and where and it's so important in everything I do to always affirm However you're feeling and wherever you're at is completely fine. So if you're feeling like I don't really resonate with this, I don't feel like I'm really needing this, I need to just get get on with it, like that's completely fine. So it's not about trying to pull people into some sort of grief or <laughs> emotional right. process they're not into. Like that's why we're non-clinically. This is not a, about therapy. This is about how do we be more effective in in our organizational work? And it's really, really important that everyone feels like wherever they are is okay. Then, you know, in those spaces of convenings and, you know, I'm very interested in train the trainer models where it's not so much me coming in, but how can I work with leadership? How can I work and partner with internal folks who can move this forward is convening people in ways where, frankly, we really lean into empathizing and developing more empathy skills just with each other within on the team level. And that could take the, you know, all kinds of forms that could be interviewing each other or listening or conversations. And, but it's really, really important 
that we start, if we want to be, if this goes into how we are effective in the world is really about our capacities to have empathy for a whole variety of people across all kinds of spectrums. Right. And so if we can't do that in our own team, in our own organizations, then it doesn't portend well for our ability to show up with the level of empathy, with the level of, you know, being open and curious about the experience of others that we're needing to right now. And I wonder if, if you get to the solution stage is that it, it, you're not there to solve the climate change problem. That's not your role, but just it, it could be as mundane as sort of you're recommending that, okay, well, these people are stressed out because they're worried about climate change, but they're also working 50, 60 hours a week. Oh, they're only getting two weeks of vacation a year. Does it ever kind of come down to the workplace environment is going to go a long way to, because climate change isn't going in away and it's, it's only going to get worse and that's just looming out there. So is it when you get to the kind of solutions part of this? Yeah. I mean, I do end up working on what it sounds like you're highlighting is just how organizations function, right? Like team team dynamics and practices as far as, you know, hours and uh, workflow and work, you know, process, check-ins, time off, you know, all of that kind of thing. We have to look at that as well. You know, the, the, the fundamental focus here is what are the conditions that truly cultivate and enable us to be effective in the world. Like that's just the bottom line. What are the conditions? And when we look at that at an organizational level, we're looking at team dynamics. We're talking about uh, interpersonal practices. I hear from some pretty high level, pretty big NGOs will share that sometimes their meetings can get very contentious and very volatile and charged precisely because we're holding so much and we're all dealing with such high stakes and it's stressful. And so if we don't have ways to function and work well as a team, that will influence our productivity. So it's really at that level all the way to, you know, looking at HR and training and capacity building all the way to, you know, having someone like me, you know, a psychologist come in and do some workshops and kind of introduce some new frameworks and processes that the organization can carry forward. All right. And so I, I want to just read you a quote that you wrote, and I've, it, we're talking about solutions here, too. And this was in the Pacific Standard. And you say, in the climate change field, we see that those working on the front lines of engagement, advocacy and education tend to skip acknowledgement of people's fears and focus instead on solutions. From a psychotherapeutic perspective, this doesn't make a lot of sense. And so this is kind of the situation where let's when my wife comes and she's, she has some problems. And instead of just listening to her, I just offer up all these solutions. That's sort of the stereotypical response. Is that kind of what you're getting at? there too. It's just don't jump right into solutions. Exactly. It's it's psychologically incoherent. And and frankly, it leads to a lot of problems and relationship breakdowns, as you just pointed out. It's um, you know, our ability to stay with people in their own experience, even if it's hard and messy and complicated, and not jump in to fix, to educate to persuade, you know, that is actually where the traction is, right? And and that goes for every kind of relationship we have, that our ability to actually 
say, I'm going to just hold space and I'm going to hear and acknowledge where you're at and what's hard is actually, you know, I've used the word paradox before. It's the paradox of change where when we show up in that way, we're actually enabling others to join with us more quickly into the solutions into, okay, now what can we do? But when you skip that and you bypass that, that really important piece, we're not bringing people fully along with us. We're actually kind of like tugging, like it's almost like a donkey that's just kind of stubbornly standing there and you're trying to pull it. Like that's exactly what we're doing unintentionally when we just rah, rah, cheerlead the solutions. And it's, it's actually really tone deaf. So, you know, I also just want to acknowledge is also usually a reflection of our own relationship with our feelings, with our own sense of, you know, our own sense of discomfort. So if it's hard for me to hang out with myself in my feeling of discomfort, you better believe I'm not going to want to hang out with my partner or my stakeholders, my board members, my members, my funders. You know, I'm not going to want to hang out with them and they're in their difficulty. So it's a, that's why it's kind of I call it an inside out job, basically. I want to go back to this, this, the broader issue of climate change. And this is very difficult because like I said, it's, it's not going to get any better and it's probably going to get a lot worse. And that's just looming over everything that you do. And so as you're working with individuals, I mean, it, it must be really difficult to sort of say, okay, here are some skills that'll help you deal with this. Meanwhile, that threat is still never kind of going away anytime soon. I mean, how do you kind of break those two apart? It, that, that must be such a – for people that are just stressed about this kind of the esoteric as opposed to, you know, that's in your face climate change, how, you, how do you kind of communicate in, in that regard? Well, I think it's incredibly important to be honest and to acknowledge the reality of the situation. Um, and I'll, I'll share in a minute, you know, the guiding principles for Project Inside Out that relate to precisely this question of how do we – how do we stay with what's real and, and, and what's real is the long haul, you know, the, the fact this isn't going away. So it's, it's so incredibly important that we acknowledge that, that we, we're not trying to minimize or skip over that. And at the same time, drawing our attention to what's possible right now. I think it's, it's almost a spiritual capacity. You know, in, in Buddhist practice, there's the term equanimity. Um, in 12 step, there's the serenity prayer. You know, across many spiritual practices, you know, it seems like we as humans have come to this, this place of how do we stay with what is real and what's hard and still keep connected and engaged with the work of living, right? Like, how do we hold those paradoxes? How do we hold those contradictions? And so the more we can acknowledge and name that again, you know, the the more capacity and resilience we are actually building in ourselves and in each other. So it's sort of like, you know, you go to see a therapist and you're dealing with a really deep problem. You've had you've been doing something your whole life and you're now at a point where, you know, you're realizing that this isn't serving you anymore and you've got to change this deep pattern, which is related to in, likely to some wounding, to some old trauma that we have had, we've been carrying our lives. 
Now, a good therapist will be real with you. A good therapist will say, you know what, this isn't going to go away overnight. You know, we're going to, you're going to be likely working on this for the rest of your life. It's never going to go away. <laughs> However, it will get better. And there will be times when you experience some incredible breakthroughs and there'll be times when you feel like, oh my God, like I'm so, I just feel so hopeless. And so the therapist being able to give that kind of preview, that's just a very well-known practice, you know, that, that we do for each other, which is to say, this is what you can anticipate. And then we can sort of like, okay, thank you. Like now I can orient myself. Now I can sort of organize my whole kind of psychic landscape to this reality and I and I can process it and I can feel angry and and all of those things but it's like at least thank god you're being real with me and let's go you know let's go on this journey together All right when we first touched base I said I was going to bring this up and so th there's a situation in this might be just a terrible example, but you're working with let's say, an individual, an organization, and he's having just real trouble and not really making much progress. And I like to sort of look at the, the parallel between someone in the military and PTSD. You know, they have these real mental issues. They're, they were in combat. And then a psychologist might just say, yeah, you should never go back in combat again. You know, that probably is a very, you know, standard kind of recommendation. And you've never been in a position where you maybe you've recommended that to someone who's working in the climate space or is it just, is it not even the apples and oranges well it's you know what's in common with what you've just shared is trauma what you're talking about are traumatic events and so you know psychologically speaking of course we we need to be highly attentive to how we expose ourselves to different kinds of trauma so in your experience you know your example of going back into war you know, I, I think what we can learn from that from the climate for the climate context is to, you know, we're not going to be there is no going away from it, but it's how we manage our own proximity and our own relationship with the issues and with the work. And so here I think about the work of my very dear friend and colleague, Leslie Davenport, who is a climate psychologist, has been writing on these topics. She runs a psychotherapeutic practice. She has a background in health psychology where she speaks very clearly about the importance of regulating and sort of calibrating our exposure to trauma, to the climate crisis, and that there are times when it's, you know, it's like putting the oxygen mask on where there are going to be times when we need to be paying attention to ourselves, paying attention to our well-being, and we need to know when to step away to engage in, you know, practices that that nourish us, that feed us. I'm thinking about Sarah Ray Jacquet, who also wrote Field Guide to Climate Anxiety. She writes about this as well when she her book is basically a beautiful letter to her college students about coping with climate anxiety. And she talks about, you know, watering ourselves as like we're plants, right? So really, really tuning into what sustains me, what waters me, what feeds me, what nourishes me so that I can actually be rooted and grounded and effective in the world. And so it's less of a dramatic 
example of don't go into the war zone kind of situation. It's more about, you know, regulating or um, managing our relationship with the issues in a way that's ultimately healthy and compassionate to ourselves and therefore to each other. The other thing I'll just add is that I know plenty of people who have made choices to step away. You know, there's two psychologists in particular whose work was incredibly important for me when I was doing my research, my doctoral research, you know, years ago. Really insightful, really wise clinicians who were writing so eloquently about exactly these things. And they chose for their own reasons, they chose to step away. You know, one of them was just like, that's it. That was my last book on the topic. I'm going to focus on learning to play the cello. I'm going to focus on my garden. That's where I'm at, you know, and and I need to honor that. You know, I need to really refrain from judging that. Of course, I felt disappointed. Of course, I felt some judgmental response. Like, what are you doing? Like, why would you do that right now? Like, this is exactly the time we're needing you and your insights. But you know what? Like, that's completely outside of my zone. That's that's not my business. And ultimately, I need to really trust others to make those kinds of decisions for themselves. And I think we all need to practice, you know, noticing when we when, you know, we start to feel kind of judgy about the choices that we make and our friends and colleagues might make around how we're coping with these really, really, really painful issues. Have you had a chance in, I mean, I've obviously explored your work, but uh, in some ways I look at the work that you're doing, like with organizations, it's almost like triage. There's an organization, they need your help, you come in and you, you provide that help. But thinking more like society-wide, strategically, you think about, all right, is there programs or there coursework that you can even get at the university level? People are like kind of leaning toward environmental careers. What you do is brought into that space. And maybe there's a subtle sort of saying, maybe this isn't the right area for you. And it's top to bottom sort of really trying, because again, we're going to need a huge climate workforce over the coming decades. And have you had a chance to really uh, think strategically like that? About like top to bottom, sort of like society approaching everything associated with climate change and like what you're doing. It's like our organizations, our businesses, are they are they setting up the, the structure like schooling and all, you know, training to to help people go into the right careers or deal with it when they're in, in that in that space? It just seems like it, it needs to kind of be mm-hmm. go big. It does. It does. What I do see is a strong indication that that kind of evaluation assessment of how do we all kind of get on board quickly is happening. I'm less dialed into what's going on on the front lines of the educational sectors, but my sense is it's very much underway because it's being forced to, because we're seeing a surge of young people in particular. You know, there's a a paper that was just published a few days ago in The Lancet about young people and climate anxiety. You know, there was a paper published in The Lancet a month ago about climate grief. So, you know, this is actually happening. And so by necessity, organizations are starting to respond and and address this. It is a really big theme of my work. So the book that I'm working on right now, which is, sort you know, intended to be a mainstream book, basically about the psychology of climate change and environmental crisis, the, the, the punchline of all of that work 
is really inviting people to see themselves as part of this much bigger story and to blow up what we think it means to be engaged with, you know, the fight of the lifetime kind of thing, you know, that, that now is the time to really truly shed all of the, the assumptions and the, the labels and the stereotypes about what it looks like and means to be an activist, what it looks like and means to, you know, to be an environmentalist, to be a climate activist, to be, you know, like all of that, we just have to drop it. Right. Which is to say that each and every single human being on the planet is part of this bigger story and that we have a responsibility to invite each and every person, regardless of background and region and, and so forth to really have a sense of themselves as co-creators of the story. And so I see that happening. I think that it's what's likely going, going to happen is a real acceleration of that. You know, I'm working right now with some private sector organizations who are going through a pretty profound transformation in terms of the workforce, you know, starting to re configure themselves. It's not easy work though. It's, it's, it's really, really intense because it, you know, it really forces us to reevaluate everything, you know, to really reevaluate what we, what our values are, our identities. Who am I if I'm doing this instead of that? And again, kind of leaning into a new, a new narrative. You probably push back on this. I'm sure I might hear from my listeners too. But to me, I think a, a field or a discipline has it's come of, of age or whatever. It's like, to me, discouraging people to get into a field is actually, you know, it, it should be part of uh, the toolkit. You know, like a doctor that just has no empathy and they're really good about everything else and you're just seeing them, they're like, <laughs> they're just like a month and I mean, like a medical doctor. It's like, maybe they shouldn't be a doctor. And if you're dealing with, you know, a lot, I went up through, uh, got a degree, master's degree in ecology, dealing with a lot of environmental activists, and the mentality is just like, hey, you're willing to fight the fight, come on, and as opposed to sort of say, well, maybe you're not a good fit for this field, especially early on, and I just think that's useful. You know, it's not just you don't want to discourage people to be part of this. Being an effective person in this career for 40, 50 years, you need to kind of identify those things early on, and yet, you know, listen, you might totally disagree, but I just think that's a sign of a majority, too, is you're, you've learned something about a person. Listen, this might not be a, the best fit for you. Hmm. I don't really think we can afford that right now, but I hear what you're saying and I would offer a reframe. You know, the, the reframe is not whether or not you're part of this movement and this work. You know, the reframe is how you are part of it in a way that makes most sense for you and your capacities, your skills, your attributes, your strengths, your limitations. So, yeah, in terms of if you think about the cells in an organism, right, every cell is vital to, for the organism to function. Some cells, you know, if we think about the human body, a liver cell doesn't have any business being in the lungs, right? So, you know, we don't necessarily want people who have very, very low empathy to be out on the front lines communicating with diverse and with diverse and com communities and populations. You want people who actually have high, high degree of empathy, high emotional intelligence, which is frankly the number, I think the number one 
attribute capability that our movement needs right now, like ASAP is emotional intelligence, right? That F now. So, you know, we wouldn't put someone <laughs> in role of leadership who doesn't have that, right? But that makes sense in a lab. That might make sense in, you know, writing a blog. Like, you know, I, I just feel like it's all hands on deck right now. And what's really exciting to me is to think about what this can wake up for people when they really, really get that there's a there's a place for each one of us, that it's not about it's only for those kinds of people. Right. I don't think we we can afford that anymore. All right. Nice save for me. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I definitely want to get to the project inside out. And I know this it's you're at sort of the beginning of this. But can you kind of give a preview and you, you shared something with me and maybe give a preview of that? Sure. So Project Inside Out is a is a project that was funded by the KR Foundation. And what it is, is essentially an experiment to see if we can translate the wisdom, best practice research in the psychological sectors and specifically the more clinical neuroscientific psychodynamic trauma related fields of research that have just been exploding in recent years and have so much to offer our work on climate change and the environmental crisis. And so we've developed some tools and resources that we are hoping can be real guidance for people working on the front lines of climate change. And at the heart of Project Inside Out are what we call guiding principles. And our hope is that these guiding principles are really simple and elegant and spacious enough to be adapted and applied and experimented with in all kinds of ways. And, and they are a true distillation over a couple of years of working closely with a cohort of amazing climate clinicians and Leslie Davenport, Caroline Hickman. We've got a number of amazing people in, in the group. Motivational interviewing is a very, very big part of this. How do we translate motivational interviewing in the public health sector into the climate context. So so really these guiding principles together are about how do we show up differently and how do we show up effectively as guides. The guiding principles are, and people can check it out and go to the website projectinsideout.net. The guiding principles are attune, so really tuning in to our stakeholders, our I, I we say people just as a as a stand-in for whoever it is that we're working with. So deep attunement, you know, really tuning into the anxieties, the ambivalence, the aspirations of people that we're, we're partnering with and we're working with. The second is reveal, and reveal is about how do we become compassionate truth-tellers? How do we bring emotional intelligence to our storytelling, to our connecting the dots to educating and informing and, and sharing the information that needs to be shared in an emotionally intelligent and compassionate way. Three is equip. So really providing tools, resources, guidance, like Citizens Climate Lobby does a really good job of this. You know, how do organizations really take the incredible skill and insight that they have in their own organization and actually share it out and, and be willing to share it out, even if it's, you know, not totally perfect. So I, I work with a lot of organizations to say, hey, you all start telling your own stories and share your expertise. You don't need to bring someone in from the outside. You know, it's it, how do you share out with your constituents 
what you already know from working in, in the space. So it's really capacity building. And then the fourth is convene. And convene is really about getting people into interaction with each other. It's about small group conversations. It's about process work. So, you know, ideally it's a way of bringing that into every aspect of our campaign strategy is to think about, you know, it's not just us talking at people, but it's getting people into really dynamic and really productive interactions with each other. And frankly, inviting more people into those conversations outside of our normal community. So pushing ourselves to extend deep into, you know, deep engagement and partnership with a whole variety of, of communities and populations who may not have been engaged as much with climate and environment uh, until recent time. And sustain, and sustain is the fifth guiding principle, and sustain is about how do we do this for the long haul and how do we design our campaign strategies for the long haul. So that's nicknamed Beyond the Pledge. I'm, I'm sort of a critic of pledges because <laughs> pledges are just really so overused. And, you know, it's sort of like a good behavioral economic concept, I, uh, you know, practice that came about maybe 20 years ago, you know, in the, in the realm of nudging and pledging, it's like, I take this pledge, but then with what we're talking about, like the magnitude of transformation we're talking about, a pledge just isn't going to do it. You know, we have to go beyond the pledge and really think about what truly sustains deep systemic change, political change, social change, biotic change. How do we sustain that? And it's really in relationship. Right. It's really like knowing I'm in a community of practice where I can keep going back and keep going back and keep going back and saying, hey, I had this conversation. It didn't go very well. I was trying to convince my boss that we should stop flying to conferences around the world. She really shut me down. It's providing support networks, communities of practice so that once we get people engaged, once they're actually like, okay, you got me, like I'm on, I'm, I'm, I'm in, <laughs> I'm on board. Now, how do we as organizations and activists and advocates actually, you know, provide some real scaffolding? And they all actually interrelate with each other and are all, in a way, it's just one whole that's, that's facets of, of the bigger picture here. Renee, just a couple more questions in this. I have to ask this because I'm very curious. Is it, I've mainly heard about you, and it's been years now. I, I go back and it's like, oh, you should talk to Dr. Lertzman, and uh, here we are. But it's been people in the adaptation space, and if, I, I'm guessing you know what I mean, too. Like I look at climate change, there's two kind of fields, mitigation and adaptation. Mitigation's on the carbon emission side. They're doing their thing. They need to do their thing. But then there's the people on the adaptation side, and that's the area that I this podcast is about. Do you find the work that you're doing it focuses or on one side or the other? Or is it sort of a mix? It's a mix because it has to be a mix. And the organizations I work with, I choose to work with organizations who get that. So it's, you know, you might have picked up. I'm not sure if it's been clear. I'm, I'm really not a fan of binaries and polarities. <laughs> so when we start to say this versus that, you know, adaptation versus mitigation, I'm not saying you're suggesting this, but, you know, when we have those framings, individual change versus system change, that's another really popular one. 
um, hope versus despair. You know, I, my initial reflex is to blow those up and say, yes, and yes, and yes, and. So I'm really excited about working and partnering with orgs that, that are truly systemic in their ways of thinking in their mindsets and to bring awareness. It's a, almost like a mindfulness practice to notice when we get pulled into the either or. And, you know, just just your question is, is just it's making me reflect on the fact that in actuality, the orgs I work with, the partners I have interestingly don't even talk about, you know, mitigation versus adaptation. It's just kind of like we're doing we're working on all fronts right now. I will just share that um, the emphasis of Project Inside Out, which is in relation to our funder, the KR Foundation, there is a very heavy emphasis on mitigation, on slowing down, on, you know, shifting our consumption practices. So I'm very committed to that. You know, I'm very committed to how do we stay, you know, how do we stay engaged with the work of transforming our kind of how did we get in this situation in the first place and, you know, introducing different ways of living and being in the world. Um, so there's that you know, alongside the psychological dimensions of adaptation, which are really profound, really, really profound. And, you know, maybe we could do a whole other episode just on the psychology of adaptation, you know, because, right, because it's really, it's, it's really deep. It's like making, how do we make peace with or how do we be with that reality? And I think people working in adaptation likely are experiencing a lot of resistance from others. No, we should do that episode for sure. And I guess I've never looked at it as versus. It's just they're different skill sets. You, you're a sea level rise researcher and in no way in your portfolio of responsibilities does clean air energy or carbon emissions come into play. And so it's literally there's so many people in adaptation space. They're just not in like they want the mitigation people. Please be successful. We, we're, we're cheering for you. But it's just absolutely different skill sets. And so that's that's what I kind of mean. And that's what I kind of bring to the podcast. And mm-hmm. but and to your last point there though because you know i obviously get a ton of information uh, and on twitter i follow people that are in the mitigation space i follow people that are in adaptation space and this is anecdotal this isn't scientific but i just find those mitigation people they just seem super unhappy and they well they should be but it's just like the the, the messaging and everything's so much more dire but then with the adaptation people it's just like oh here's this and you know they're certainly bothered and there's certainly those tweets that come out that talking about the broader issue but they're just like if we're going to have to deal with floods, we're going to have to make these tough decisions. And it's just a completely different tone and mindset. And I sort of get it, you know, because on the mitigation side, it's sort of a it's a tougher job to get worldwide carbon emissions to come down. But I, that's kind of I, I see that even and I, what I'm getting at, too, is like how you work with people, how they're, they're their own mental space when it comes to climate change. Right. Well, Doug, I would say that it's absolutely critical that people working in the adaptation space become more adept at guiding those in other realms, including mitigation, to join, to, to you know, partner and join you. Now, I don't mean join you in the sense of, like, change, move over into that realm, but I think that what you just described is really profound, actually. And 
I think that what you're dealing with are a lot of um, kind of where we we invest ourselves emotionally in this context. And what I would like to see are more dialogue, you know, more constructive interactions, partnerships and dialogue uh, across these realms, across these areas of focus. So they start to be less fixed. Like you said, the, those mitigate, those mitigation people, <laughs> you know, I, I would really hope that that isn't really such a hard and fast thing. And so I think there's such an opportunity for people working in adaptation focused work to build the emotional intelligence, the capacity, as I'm mentioning, you know, you can look at the guiding principles. It could, might be helpful you know, to actually tune in and try to appreciate and understand where they're coming from and, you know, to really practice, you know, being a guide, you know, practice listening, practice the empathetic, you know, mode of of be of relating. I get it. I guess that's where you're at. I get that that's, you know, what you're focused on. Are you open to, you know, uh, looking at it from this angle? Right. Right. You know, I'm open to a lot of ways. It's just, you know, I don't bring on a lot of mitigation theme just because my background is in adaptation policy. It just, it's, it's the kind of deep dive conversation I think I'm better at, but there is some overlap. And so, no, I, I would be curious, like maybe even email correspondence if you have ideas of how that kind of actually manifests itself. I'd be interested. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if someone's done some um, psychological analysis of the mitigation adaptation communities. I'm sure there's been some really interesting research on that. Well, and the adaptation people have their own sort of attitude, too, and I'm, I'm part of that community. It's just like if I veer off my topic even a little bit, I get, Doug, <laughs> get back to adaptation, you know. And so they see themselves mm. as a community, and they see themselves as a skill set that's defined. And I get this every once in a while. It's like, Doug, you, we can't adapt our way out of climate change. And I have said repeatedly on the pod, it's like we need the mitigation people to <laughs> Do what they're doing. There's no adapting out of it if we just let it go out of control. But meanwhile, we are going to be living with climate impacts, and so we, we have to think about it. And so I, people seem to think that, oh, we, Doug's suggesting we're throwing in the towel on the mitigation. Oh, God, no. no. Exactly. Yeah. Well, no. that's 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 exactly what I'm saying is that that perception is one that you would ideally engage with very explicitly. That perception of that's that goes to the essence of the psychological piece here, which is throwing in the towel. And that's why people are holding on and and resistant to engaging with the adaptation realm. It's it's not rational. You know, it's not at a rational level. It's at an emotional level. And it's that feeling of if I go there, we are admitting defeat. And so I think it's really important for adaptation folks to develop more skill set around engaging with that in an effective way. All right. Well, point taken. You're a consultant. And so if people want to engage with you, I have a lot of groups, you know, cities, organizations that listen to the podcast. Are you interacting? Are you working with these groups right now? Yes, absolutely. I love working with organizations and partnering with, with climate groups and governmental agencies. You know, at any given time, I'm usually working across sectors, which is, Pretty cool. It's been that way since I, you know, launched my consultancy. Gosh, 
like 2010, usually I'm working with government, NGO, private sector, philanthropic, educational, uh, increasingly science and science, informal science education. So I love, love working with practitioners. It's why I left academia and, mm-hmm. and now doing what I'm doing. So I encourage people to get in touch with me. You know, really the best way is through my website, which is just my name, ReneeLertzman.com. And you can send me a note that way. And I'm on Twitter. It's another way. Uh, you know, it's at Renee Lertzman. And, and I'll certainly have links to all your social media and your website on, on the show notes for this episode so people can track it down that way, too. Cool. Renee, this has been a, this lived up to the, my what I wanted out of this conversation. I'm sure we could have talked for another hour, even though you probably don't want that. But the last the the last question, and this is what I ask all my guests, is if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would it be? Oh, hands down, there's two people. Okay, <laughs> go on. <laughs> I would recommend Leslie Davenport. Okay, she should be on your podcast. And um, the second person is Caroline Hickman. So these are my current two favorite climate psychologists, and they're quite different. You know, Leslie Davenport, just, oh, my gosh, you know, you're going to love her. And psychotherapist based in Tacoma, Washington, working on two new books about talking with young people about climate change. Um, And Caroline Hickman is based in the U.K., at and the University of Bath. You you know them. You could potentially put me in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. They'll both blow your mind. Renee, again, fantastic conversation. I'm glad we were able to sort of connect this way and open an invitation if you feel there's another area we should take a deep dive on. Certainly, let's do that. I appreciate the work that you're doing, and thanks for coming on. Thank you. Likewise, Doug. Really great conversation. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Renee for coming on the show. As I said before, it's been a long time coming and I truly enjoyed that conversation. It's an emerging area in the climate arena and I'm sure only going to gain importance and relevance as more and more people get involved in the climate sector. Definitely check out her work with Project Inside Out. Links are in the show notes. And if you're interested in working with Dr. Lertzman directly, as she said, reach out to her. That'd actually be a good idea for a future episode, checking in with Renee and then talking with an organization she's worked with. We could hear firsthand how people are responding to these opportunities to share their climate stories and the trauma and anxieties they're dealing with. Yeah, definitely should revisit that. Okay, don't forget to check out the Podcast in the Classroom initiative we're doing. We have hit the 25-episode milestone meaning there are now 25 discussion guides available on the webpage for you. Thanks to Kate Bishop-Williams for being the driving force behind this initiative. I've heard from many professors using America Adapts in their classroom, and you can also use it in the workplace. Consider using it more formally with some discussion guides, and also consider with this huge transition to online learning due to COVID-19, use podcasts with your students. Or students, ask your teachers to use podcasts. You can find those discussion guides on my website at americadapts.org. So if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast via America Adapts, and yes, this is different than what I've talked about with Simpatico Studios, think about using a podcast. I've worked with many partners, WWF, Harvard, MIT, UCLA, those recent episodes with the trustees of Reservation. Maybe you want to tell your story via a podcast. Reach out, let's partner. Also, I do presentations to classes and keynote presentations at conferences. I know we're all taking a break from those at the moment, but we're doing some of these things virtually. So feel free to contact me if you're interested in me having speak at your event. So most of you have heard me over and over again talk about the work at Simpatico Studios, but I want to keep bringing it to your attention. So folks, things are full steam ahead. I'm hosting live talk shows on the Climate Adaptation Channel. I've recently passed 130 
interviews on Zimpatico. Imagine this, a whole streaming channel focusing on climate adaptation. Who would have thought? Right now we're recording pilots. I'm interviewing climate experts, clean energy entrepreneurs, and academics from around the world. If you're a professional in this space, maybe we can have a conversation about the work that you're doing. It's a pretty simple process to participate, and videos from all our episodes are professionally produced, and then you can use them on your own website and social channels and upload them to YouTube. And if you're looking for opportunities for remote working, Simpatico is definitely something you should look into. We're starting to host fundraisers, panels, getting involved with workshops. Definitely check it out. And if you're just interested in coming and watching a show and participating in the community room, Simpatico is actually behind a firewall, but it's a relatively easy process to register and get invited on. And so you can check out our show. Check it out at simpatico.com. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join, and I will approve you right away. And in the community room, come in and share what you're doing. I like to hear from folks out there and all the cool work that you're up to. And on that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. I hear people from LinkedIn or they email me or they tweet at me. And please, I encourage you, if there's a particular episode you really enjoyed, use your social media. The greatest source of podcast growth, and I'm, I'm a big follower of the podcast industry, is through word of mouth. And so you guys out there sharing it with your colleagues, you know, have your own podcasting, sort of the equivalent of a book club. You can be talking about episodes and stuff. So please share on your social media or newsletters and listservs. You'd be doing me a great favor. And you can email me directly at americadaps at gmail.com. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.